So we're back. Hi, everyone. A couple of days late. Yeah, a couple days. Sorry about that. But we're here, and it's pie day, officially. It is pie day, so go eat some pie. Some pizza pie, cherry pie, apple pie. I was thinking of having pizza followed by key lime pie. Oh, that's pretty cool. What's your favorite pie, Hillary? I know this answer already, and it's kind of horrifying. Stop it. It's it's lemon icebox pie. Stop it. I love it. I was introduced to it when I lived in Texas, and I've never had something so decadent in my life. I mean, growing up in the South, I it's something I'm used to. Lemon icebox pie, for those who don't know, is not a very complicated recipe at all. Usually you get a graham cracker crust, you get some Kansas sweetened condensed milk and lemon juice, and you mix it together and you pour it in the pie shell, basically. You may or may not add egg yolk to it. It's so good. It's It's so so rich. Yeah, it's so refreshing to me with a lot of the lemon. Before I had had lemon icebox pie, because that was only a couple years ago that I had it, my favorite was um, coconut cream pie. That's one of my favorites still. Wow, you tend to the really sweet pies. Listen, I do. I love rhubarb. (laughs) I was going to say, yeah. So you rhubarb. See, I won't eat that. Strawberry rhubarb pie. Yes, please. Do you like fruit pies? Uh, I do if the crust doesn't have a soggy bottom like Mary Berry always warns. <laughs> yeah, that's always the discussion about the soggy bottoms. Um, yes. Well, today we are uh, – It's. I mean, it's a special episode, but not really. It's something we've wanted to talk about, we haven't gotten around to. But it is Women's History Month, the month of March. And we're going to talk about second wave feminism. Yeah, I'm specifically, but I think we're going to touch on first and third wave feminism as well. Yeah, to put it into context about what second wave is, that would make sense. Yeah, right. All right, well, so let's get started. Yes. Welcome to an incomplete history. I'm Hillary, and I'm Jeff, and we're your hosts for this weekly history podcast. So we don't want to disappoint fans. We need a weather update. Um, You have a weather update more than me. I've been hearing from my family. Go. Well, it's been raining and then it's been cold. And it's not cold for other parts of the country. But for us, it's been very cold, like uncomfortably cold. Like sweater weather, soup weather, hot chocolate weather. Yeah. I I wanted to go out and sit on the patio the other day to grade some papers. I could not do it comfortably. Like, yeah, but the- I mean, yeah, no, it's not. It's been it's been chilly. I've I've been paying attention. Uh, makes sense, and it's been raining. And you know, I would say it's a little out of character. By March, this By time March, in March, yeah. we should have June gloom and May gray house should not have set in yet. Which means March, we should be in the mid to upper seventies right now. And you're not. It should be clear. Um, occasional rain every once in a while, but very small chance of rain. It should be really nice. And it just is not. I mean, I recently purchased a new beach chair with the idea of taking my laptop down to the beach and socially isolating up near Carlsbad or something on the beach and just sitting there. And it's not even been remotely close to whether I would feel comfortable doing that in. Not ready for that yet. (laughs) <laughs> which is but disappointing. The beach chair is not going anywhere. So The beach chair is not going anywhere. As soon as, I mean, maybe for spring quarter, I'll be able to do a little bit of that. Uh, how about... It's toasty here. I mean, I went out this morning on a walk and I was um, really, really warm. And uh, it's beautiful though, because things have bloomed. And we were talking, I think last week or the week before that I was a little concerned with that heavy snow that we got so late that things wouldn't bloom, but the daffodils are out. The trees are blooming. Everything and all the trees. Red buds. Beautiful. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's beautiful everywhere. All the trees look, there's red buds. There's white. Um, I think they're like pear, they're called pear trees. They don't grow. Or do you have dogwoods? We have dogwoods as well. And those are all beautiful. Dogwoods are pretty. Mm -hmm. So everything looks really nice out here right now and it's warm. Um, So I think we're done with our cold weather, but 
the big storms are coming. So I just got an alert that's saying, you know, severe weather coming to your area, which means like possible tornadoes and whatever. I mean, you are kind of in tornado alley. We are in tornado alley. Yeah. So maybe so I'll have something to report next week. <laughs> so second wave feminism. Um, I mean, let's start with the question a lot of my students always ask. They were like, why is it called second wave feminism? Well, because there was a first wave. <laughs> so who would you who would you pin as the start of first wave feminism? Gosh, you know, it's to say feminism, the word feminism doesn't come into vogue or into use until I think the first time it's seen in print is 1909 during um, the suffrage, you know, the campaign for women's suffrage in the early 20th century. Uh, so I think the first wave feminism is around there, even though there were women working toward the vote, like Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, as early as 1848, I wouldn't peg that as specifically a feminist movement. Um, I think the real feminist movement starts in the 19 teens. What do you think? The progressive era? I mean, I think you bring up many, many good points. I, in my head, have a very different uh, person in mind. And I would say you have to go back to the late 18th century. Like Abigail I think it's very... I think it's Mary Wollstonecraft. Yeah, Mary Wollstonecraft, Vindication of the Rights of Women. But then if, okay, so then if you start there, then the first wave is like 150 years. I think the first wave is very long. Okay. But the word, okay, but it's, isn't it anachronistic to say feminism though, because that word wasn't used? That word's not used. However, the stuff I think Wollstonecraft writes in her Vindication of the Rights of Women, certainly hues pretty closely to what women at the end of the 19th century are saying. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing There's is clear links between Wollstonecraft, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the Grimke sisters, Susan B. Anthony, um, and so on and so forth. You can always see the legacy of it. Um, but it, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's hard to say that it's just lasted for so long because there was some doldrums in there too. Right. So you have vindication mm-hmm. of the rights of women and then there's a real lull in. Um, I don't know. Is there some of those early women in the United States during the Revolutionary War who were advocating for increased ability for women to participate? Yeah. And and briefly, New Jersey and a couple of other states mess up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they they actually leave loopholes for women who end up being usually older property owners whose husbands have died. Suddenly, those women can vote. And they, these states scramble pretty quickly to close those loopholes. And they're like, no, we don't want women voting. But I mean, I think the thing that unites first wave feminism is suffrage, is this quest for, in theory, more equal political participation. And I think right in the middle of it, you've got the dissatisfaction many of the women who are involved in abolition feel at the conclusion of the Civil War. They expect to be included in the reconstruction amendments. And right. And not. that's what causes um, the women to split up. You know, I mean, you had a pretty unified front going forward and then Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony split from the party and they create their own. So you have the AWSA and then the NAWSA and that splits over the race question about, you know, Susan B. Anthony famously just said, Unless women have the right to vote in the 15th Amendment, I don't want it. And her and Frederick Douglass went, you know, head to head about that multiple times. And he told her, he said, stand aside. It's the black man's turn right now. And she wasn't okay with that. But then you had other women like Lucretia Mott, um, who said, you know, no, we need to stand with the 15th Amendment. So women in the feminist movement or first wave feminism much like every wave of feminism, they have their own splits and there isn't necessarily, there is a unified force in first wave with the right to vote, but it does often split down class and racial lines. And I think that's the first instance we see of that. And I think we see this echoed through second and third wave feminism, that there are ruptures along class and racial lines and religious lines. I would throw religion in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt about it. Um, so, f- so does first wave feminism end once women get the right to vote? 
Kind of. I mean, so there was a small push afterward with Alice Paul to pass the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, which is still never passed. Um, and so there were, um, you know, pushes for that as early as 1921. But I think that there's a bit of a lull. I mean, I do. I think in like strong activist rights for women, I think that there's a lull between uh, first wave and second wave. And you know, we could say second wave starts right after World War II. So I would say that there's maybe like a 15-ish year lull, 20-ish year lull. What do you think? It's kind of a wilderness period, I think, for feminism because, I mean, so the Equal Rights Amendment gets proposed um, in 1921. The National Women's Party kind of moves forward to push this amendment to be put in the Constitution that's going to rectify the fact women are left out of the 15th Amendment. And all the ERA really says is equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. That's it. We're still we're still not there. I mean, we. I mean, that's. That. It seems like such a simple thing, and I think I can I can understand why Susan B. Anthony's mad because it's just like just put the word sex in along with the other stuff in the Fifteenth Amendment, and we'll be happy. Yeah, but it's just too big of a hill to climb. Because, And the thing is, it's like, here's the problem. It's all men who vote for it. All men are the ones who are in government. They really do not want women voting. I mean, that's like bottom line here. It's like men in power and men in general, by and large, do not, women to have, do not want women to have equal rights or equal representation. The, the, to me, there's just no disputing that. They, they show it time and time again. They have no interest in establishing any sort of equal protection or equal representation for women. From the very beginning, when you have Abigail Adams begging John Adams, don't forget the ladies. And he's like, oops, I forgot the ladies. You know, it just happens over and over again. So how about second wave feminism? Second wave feminism starts right after World War II. And I think kind of there's a little bit of a lull in the 1950s. Um, but then in 1963, with the publication of The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I hate that book. Do you? Okay. She's so I am. By Simone de Beauvoir, who writes. I am like, I am, a, I, am a, I am a fan of Simone de Beauvoir. Her second sex is published in 1949. Jeff and she French says, and, I don't. and she's like, her famous quote is, uh, on ne n'est pas femme, on la devient, which is one is not born, but becomes a woman. Oh, yeah. That's powerful. Uh, that, that encapsulates so much. I mean, she is here. She's crystallizing this thing of biological sex and gender are two different things that society constructs gender Biological sex is this other thing. Now we can have discussions about what current criticism of biological sex is, but Simone de Beauvoir here is for the very first time separating these things and say, look, when a girl is born, she is not automatically all of these things we ascribe to women. We teach her these are the things that she is. We provide her positive characteristics she is because of this, but we also give her limits based on this. It's social construction, right? It's social construction. And I think this is, and I think the reason she calls it the second sex is she says, look, the way we've constructed women as a gender has to do, um, it's always in relationship to men. And we can go back and even look kind of in, kind of Western religion and Western mythology and say, look, they're always kind of a second product after men. And she says, this is bad. I mean, she, she, um, she impugns Aristotle. Um, she impugns the transcendentalist movement. She impugns like, there's a lot of people she criticizes in this book. When a lot of it has to do too, with biblical understanding or teachings, right? When you go back to Genesis or something, and you have this idea that women were created from a man's rib. Um, and what I really like about some of the early Grimke sisters writing back in the 1830s was they were kind of talking about how 
it's ridiculous because there are two versions of creation of men and women in Genesis. And we traditionally take the second version, which says that man mm-hmm. was uh, man was created and then woman was created from man's rib. But if you go to the very first description, it says that God made man and woman out of the clay, out of the earth. He created them at the very same time. And we always take the second story and we're like, oh, no, 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 just made from the rib. Um, so yeah, just by very, but you know, like religiously speaking, historically speaking, women are always treated as the second sex. And so she points that out. She points out the idea of social constructionism and really fleshes it out for the first time. And we use that to this day to talk about, you know, when we talk about feminism or we talk about gender studies, I always go back to those early writings to discuss what is a social construction and what does it mean and how does it impact day-to-day life? And I think a lot of people are still very confused about sex and gender. And people are very confused about how society constructs identities for people based on their genitalia. And she mm-hmm. points that out in 1949. Yeah. I mean, that's that's why I would argue it's a more important work than the feminine mystique. And, and there, I think the feminine mystique is important because it breaks it, it seeks to break some mythology in the United States and the post-war kind of prosperity of the 50s and early 60s in the United States kind of breaks that apart. My biggest problem with it is what Betty Fran Betty Friedan is observing, which is kind of overeducated uh bored women, right, who aren't given any opportunities to do anything after they've received an education, that they're not that doesn't really have anything to do with how they're expected to behave in life. It's very classist and it's very racially bound by kind of white. I would say it's applicable to white upper middle class and upper class women. Well, because that's what she sets out to do, right? So the feminine mystique is she is inspired by the second sex, right? So she writes in 1963 Um, But her whole point in going out to do this was she was going and interviewing her former classmates, right? Mm -hmm. So Betty Friedan goes out. She interviews former classmates from Smith College. um, And they were at their 15th anniversary reunion. And she's just asking, like, so how are things going for you now? And they're all miserable. They are supposedly living this American dream. They've They've been educated, which is like huge in that time period, the 1940s and 50s for women. But then they've gone and they've married. They have children. They're living in what's this brand new space of like suburbia. Um, They're living like this leave it to beaver sort of lifestyle, which is propped up as the ideal. And she's talking to them and they're miserable. And so she sets out to say, why are these women miserable? And you're right. It's very class based. It's very race-based. She is just interviewing a very small section of the population. Um, But she kind of brings something up, I think, that propels the feminist movement at a a crucial moment, especially because in 1961, so just two years prior, the birth control pill comes out. And women, for the first time, are really able to control their fertility. And so you have women who are able to control their fertility. And then you have Betty Friedan saying, you know, there's a bunch of housewives who are super unhappy. It's kind of like, to me, this catalyst for the movement in general, which a lot of times people will say runs from about 1960 to 1980, roughly, the second wave of feminism. So Griswold v. Connecticut, like that's, yeah, I think that, so I think that's a huge, I mean, it's it's interesting because I would say the, 49, Simone de Beauvoir publishes her book, and then there is not much really that happens in the 50s, at least that we talk about still today, as far as a coherent second wave feminism until the 60s. And I think Griswold versus Connecticut, the Supreme Court stepping in and saying, look, birth control is legal. You can't stop women from getting birth control is huge. That happens in 65, right? Uh, eventually, yeah. So the pill, so the pill comes out, and this is the catalyst for it, right? But I mean, the interesting thing is that one of the reasons Griswold versus Connecticut actually gets decided 
is pharmacists and doctors would make decisions about who they would allow to take this and who they wouldn't. And they would generally only allow the pill to be taken by married women who already had children. Do you know they still do that? With the IUD. You get the like 15th degree. I don't even know what it is. The third degree. I'm trying to say that, but even more. When you try to go get an IUD in the in the 21st century, you're like, well, you haven't had children yet. Yeah, whatever. Put it there. I mean, there's so much control over women's bodies, even right now to this day, that it's mind-blowing. And it's the same thing in the 1960s, um, where they only want married women. Because the whole idea is that, well, if women have the pill, then they're going to be, you know, sexually promiscuous. Um, and, you know, some of this kind of dates back too to like uh, the 1920s era. So we said that there's not a lot of feminine stuff, but like feminist stuff. What about like Margaret Sanger? No, there is. There is. But I think Sang- Ooh, Sanger. We're focused on second wave feminism. Let's not get down the Margaret Sanger eugenics hole. Uh, Someday. Margaret Sanger believes certain parts of the population should not reproduce. I will say this. There's a regime that comes into power in Central Europe in the 1930s that admires the policies of Sanger and California, which becomes in the 20s the most eugenicist state in the United States. Forced sterilizations. They are forcibly (laughs) sterilizing women of color who have been incarcerated for whatever reason. Well, and they go out into the fields and pick people out of the fields who are agricultural workers and they sterilize them without their knowledge or permission. So we can have an episode on that someday. But I think it does connect, though, when we're talking about birth control and to whom birth control is prescribed yes, uh, or why. And, and in the 1920s, it has to do with eugenics and stuff. And I think to a certain extent, I think it still does to this day. Um, where Planned Parenthood is or is not in what communities. Um, And so that's definitely important in the whole discussion. But what second wave feminism is saying is like, everybody who wants birth control should have access to it. That's one of, I think that's one of the lines of um, solidarity or what kind of propels women into action during the second wave. Um, And so you have all this stuff happening in in really short time periods. 61, the pill comes out. 63, feminine mystique comes out. 65, Griswold v. Connecticut says the government cannot intervene in who wants to seek out birth control. Really compacted series of events there that have to do with women's bodies and the control of them. So let's go back to Ferdan. So the National Organization of Women... It's created and it becomes so now, and it becomes the de facto face of, um, of the women's movement of second wave feminism. That is, and that's not to say it is the only voice because now starts to get accused pretty quickly of being very racist also of being something we would now call homophobic. So Betty Friedan warns of the lavender menace. She says that lesbians have infiltrated now and are undermining it. And they actually want to create a society without men. And, and now here's the interesting thing. There is a subset of second wave feminists who actually do form these collectives where men are not allowed. What are those called? What are those called? I haven't done much research on them, but... Um. I, I know. I just have to think about it for a minute. I'll come back to it. Um, but there are lots of societies that do develop uh, that that do just, and they're kind of communal societies that just completely um, X out men. There's one that still exists today in Holly Springs, which is about 30 minutes north of here. Um, and there's only two women left in it. Um, but so there's, yeah. So she, she does get criticized for, her classism, racism, homophobia, et cetera. One of the biggest things, and it's kind of similar to the debate that happens a hundred years prior is there, you know, during this moment, the civil rights movement is underway and people are saying in the civil rights movement, Hey, black 
men need jobs worse or more than white middle-class women who are bored. You know, mm-hmm. so there's just a greater need amongst the black community than these like rich white people who are just sitting around bored of their lives in suburbia. Um, we need to be actually be helping people who need help and not just trying to entertain rich white women. Um, I think that that's a fair critique, particularly when you look at the class of women that literally her class of women from Smith College that she interviews who are just sitting around bored. I mean, it is kind of a silly thing when you think about it. Well, it is, but this is the thing. If you look very closely at some of the leaders of the civil rights movement, their relationships with women are not always ideal. It's very problematic within the civil rights movement. And this even comes, I mean, I'm glad you brought this up because I really wanted to talk a little bit about somebody who has a connection with both of us, um, Angela Davis. So in response to things that are happening in the civil rights movement, you get the formation of the Black Panthers. And the Black Panther Party um, quickly gets a reputation for being very sexist. And Angela Davis had previously been uh, working. She was teaching um, at UCLA. um, And she decided to... uh, join the Black Panther Party because she wanted to fight this kind of sexism because, you know, she was of the belief that, you know, we can do two things at once. We can both fight for the rights of Black Americans and protect and expand the rights of women. We can do those two things simultaneously. Um, and what's interesting is, go ahead. We can't, though. I mean, every single time we've tried to do that, we fail miserably because there's just so many splinters that end up happening. And I love the idea of trying to fight toward that. And I don't think we should stop trying. But every single time we try to link forces, and this just this falls along race and class lines as well. It's like it ends up falling apart because people just have really competing interests. True, but I think, I mean, Angela Davis stays for a little while and then she eventually leaves and gets involved in this, uh, in an all black group uh, component of the Communist Party in Los Angeles. Um, She eventually gets kicked out of, uh, she gets fired from her job at UCLA, but then there's a protest and she's forced to be rehired. But I mean, Angela Davis really tied gender and class and race together. I mean, that's the thing is I think she's very much capturing something that becomes very essential for third wave feminism, which is intersectionality. Right. And that's Kimberly Crenshaw. She writes that famous law review article talking about this term that we use all the time in gender studies called intersectionality, which does just that. It unites um, different systems of oppression to say that there are layers of oppression and that we need to consider them from all angles if we're truly to root out the cause of the problem. Well, so somebody like Angela Davis would say to be a poor inner city black woman in the early 70s is to be the lowest of the low in the United States. You are marginalized socioeconomically, you're marginalized morally, you're marginalized legally. Now, I think, interestingly enough, I think you living in Mississippi would argue there are women in Mississippi who would say, we actually have it even worse. Right, in like rural communities. Poor Black women living in rural communities because there are even fewer, there's no chance for interaction with anybody else on a sustained basis. Um, So we mentioned... I mean, so there's the Black Panthers and there's kind of women moving in and out of that group. But then there's this other group that um, I want to talk about briefly, the Red Stockings. Okay, go for it. (laughs) So um, in response to the National Organization of Women, you start to get far more radical groups formed, particularly in the Northeast. And most of these women are attending um, 
they're attending kind of elite private institutions. Many of the institutions they go to are um, women only. And they start to form these kind of um, very radical groups. But I think something that's, and some of them are advocating things like society without men and these things. But I think something interesting that comes out of them um, is this idea of consciousness raising. And, you know, I, I love this. And I actually have my students, when I teach more contemporary U.S. history, I have them read Gloria Steinem's fantastic two-piece article that appeared um, uh, uh, that was published about her time working as a Playboy bunny. Oh, that's that. She kind of takes over the movement after that, right? She does. Well, she does. And she, I mean, Betty, Betty Friedan kind of sets this up. Um, You get radical responses to it. Uh, Gloria Steinem attends one of these red stocking events and she kind of moves forward with this consciousness raising thing. Um, and basically the idea of consciousness raising is some women live in a situation where they actually don't realize they're being oppressed. Um, where the way life is, it doesn't occur to them because they're so kind of embedded in just living day to day. Well, that's kind of what Betty Friedan's trying to say, though, in the feminine. It is. It is. I I mean, that's why I said she sets it up. No name, right? It's the problem that has no name. It's like, I have everything I should have, right? I I have my family. I have my home. I have Why am I unhappy? And the idea is that women will never be truly happy until they attain equality, like actual true gender equality. And so it's brought up time and time again, because there are groups of people who they're going along in their life and they don't even realize that they are oppressed. But I guess you can get into a conversation of like, if you don't know you're oppressed, are you oppressed? I don't know. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, that's one of the things Gloria Steinem's investigating, but I think what she gets surprised when she goes undercover with the playboy club and, and does this piece. I think she starts to see these women, these working class women in a very different light that many of them are actually aware of their oppression. They are fully aware of it, but there are few other opportunities for them. Right. For so many women, um, it's like a form of sex work, uh, sometimes explicitly or not, but those are the opportunities that they have. So like working at the Playboy clubs, I think flight attendants are Mm -hmm. a really good example of what's going on in the 1960s of women not having a huge amount of opportunities, but they do in, you know, this kind of brand new era of everybody taking commercial flights and travel. Um, and, and the women who worked at the Playboy Club were weighed every day, just like the women who worked as flight attendants. I mean, mm-hmm. their job and their employment rested on their looks, you know, whether or not they wore makeup, whether or not they wore short skirts, whether or not they weighed a certain amount or not. Um, and so, so much of women's oppression is tied to these beauty standards and it starts being pointed out, you know, by, I think you see it with Gloria Steinem's article first, but then women kind of see it in lots of different realms of their lives that like so much of their worth is attached to their ability to reproduce. And if they're mm-hmm. not reproducing, it's attached to their sex appeal. Yeah. So one of the th- complex. So one of the things that the Playboy bunnies have to undergo is they have to see, they have to regularly meet with a doctor that's picked by the Playboy organization. And that doctor checks them for being pregnant, but also checks them for venereal diseases. And it's, and one of the, one of the most fascinating things I think she points out in her article is how these women are told explicitly, you are not allowed to have sex with the members, period. However, if your member shows this card, which means they're this level of member or higher, you need to do whatever they ask you to do. Wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's mind-blowing, isn't it? It's mind-blowing. And it's, I mean, and, and that's the thing I think, too. I think second-wave feminism, it's not inevitably going to implode on itself, but there is increasingly a couple of different things going on. 
there's there's kind of the strain of thought that comes out of Betty Friedan's work, which is the opportunities for women are very limited. They're restricted to a couple of roles. There's another line of thought, which is women are only seen as sexual creatures that are either there to give men sexual pleasure or there to produce children. And that's really their only function in society. And there's overlap between these two, but I think there is a fundamental difference. So before we leave the Red Stockings, I do want to mention this. One of the things the Red Stockings do do as a group is they do reject that lesbian separatism. And they say, we're not going to do that. In fact, they see lesbianism as uh, a political thing. And they actually say, male homosexuality is the height of misogyny. I've heard that before in 21st century. Yeah. So the red stockings have been since labeled as homophobic because of these beliefs. But I mean, remember this is the late sixties, early seventies, right? Gay liberation isn't really haven't, hasn't really taken off much. I mean, it's in its infancy at this point. But what I find interesting is this, that so many of these groups, instead of focusing on the bigger groups that are kind of creating problems for them, focus on one another. So you get a lot of infighting. Yeah, there's a lot of infighting. And like I said, it's like the splintering that happens. And you have a lot of women of color who are feeling completely left out of this conversation. You know, you're talking about white women's problems. You're talking about white, middle, and upper-class women's problems. And in doing so, you are ignoring the plight of women who are far more oppressed and who have far like larger hill to climb than you do. And you've left them out of the leadership of this movement. You've left them out of the discussion. They don't have a seat at the table. And, you know, speaking about, you know, third wave feminism and like right at this moment, this is why the women's movement completely split up after the women's March in 2017. They had the same problem over again. You know, you had women of color who said we weren't even at the table to have this discussion to plan this March. And so we're going to splinter off and do our own thing. Um, So second wave feminism, I think when I look back on it or when I talk about it in class, I think that there's a lot of really big problems with it. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, so let's, let's back up and give a couple of more. I think what are key piece of information, Roe v. Wade. Uh, so Roe v. Wade is the Supreme court's decision in 1973 to prohibit states from banning abortion. And many people, have, way, right. It's not really specifically about abortion, Right. Right. I mean, and this is many people, including the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, say that Roe v. Wade, while good intentioned, is one of the worst things ever to happen to the women's movement. Because what it does is it fires up a reactionary group to it, including Phyllis Schlafly. You have a massive Christian backlash. Huge. It's what it, it what gets Reagan elected president. Right. Twice. Right. Yeah. Because it's what, the women's movement gets labeled as just, oh, it's just they want to kill babies or something, right? Yeah. It gets summer it gets boiled down to they all want to be lesbians and they all want to kill babies. What a mess. And and what's interesting is this is so you've got Phyllis Schlafly, and she is kind of the she is the poster child for this conservative women's movement. And I think this shows a real, this, she is kind of the voice of the women who would have voted for suffrage, who would have supported suffrage, but didn't support anything beyond that. She's a conservative woman who has, she like goes to these like really conservative values and morals. Um, But yeah, it, it stops right there. It stops right there with like, okay, women should be able to vote because she's a lawyer. She's a very successful woman. She campaigns against the ERA. You know, she goes to Radcliffe, right? Yeah. So, I mean, like she has benefited handsomely from women trying to fight toward more equality. But much like any moment in feminism and in first wave as well as second and third, you have women who actively fight against it. In the first wave, there were sometimes more women 
fighting against the right to vote, which I think blows students' minds when I talk about that. It's like, not all women wanted to vote. And a lot of women actively fought against the right to vote. And Phyllis Schlafly is one such woman that comes along during the second wave. It's like, I'm a woman and I am against the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment. I'm against abortion. Well, I mean, so Schlafly is deeply conservative religiously um, and politically. And she she feels that the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, and remember, we, we talked about that earlier. All that is is basically adding sex as something you can't discriminate on. Um, she says it's going to take away gender-specific privileges. And she says if you pass ERA, women will be able to be drafted. Um, we won't have men's and women's restrooms anymore. Um, women will lose kind of the dependent wife status and social security. There's like this whole laundry list of sh- that she brings out. And in fact, all of those things, if sex is no longer per- – if sex is not a protected thing or if sex if sex becomes something you cannot discriminate based on she is kind of right all of those things are probably going to happen yeah she kind of points out that you know hey men and women are different and women have a lot of privileges that come along with being women they get these innate protections but she's talking about white women you know, oh, yeah. I mean, that's to me, that's the biggest problem with it. Yes, she points things out that are true, but true for who? They're true for white women. White women have always historically been protected to the point of, I mean, we've talked about this in past episodes about, you know, to the detriment and death of many black men who were accused of even looking at them, right? So it's like white women, yes, they do have these inherent protections, but those protections are not afforded to every single sector. Uh, every single um, section of society. And that goes class-based too. Poor white women aren't really protected by a lot of things either. So she does make some points and it scares everybody. The biggest one that scares is what you mentioned is the draft. Women Mm -hmm. think they're going to be drafted. Nobody's happy about that. So what's interesting with ERA is ERA in the 70s, looks like it's finally, after 50 plus years of languishing, it's on the fast track to getting passed. And Schlafly latches on to this, and she famously starts lobbying state legislatures because it's been passed to the state legislatures to ratify this now. And she starts lobbying these legislators and famously sends homemade goods to these legislators produced by housewives um, with that say things like I am for mom and apple pie or preserve us from a congressional jam vote against the ERA sham. I mean, this is just, wow. And it stops. I mean, it stops dead in its track and eventually it fails to be ratified in the time it needed to be. Um, But I think what Schlafly exposes is that there are many voices being left out of second wave feminism, like you said before. Um, many second wave feminists are arguing women need to go out and get jobs and disentangle themselves from marriage and child rearing as the only things that they have going for them. And I think a response to this, you have a lot of women who are saying, well, what if I just want to be a mother? Well, what if that's actually what I want to do? And let me play Phyllis Schlafly for a second, Okay. I think one of the most troubling things to come out of second wave feminism is the idea that women have to do both things that, well, you're not a real woman or a real feminist unless you go to college and you get a good job and you're a mother. So the idea is like women's work and, and rearing children, domestic labor is labor. And women are famously not compensated for this labor, right? I, I always, in my first day of class, I always like make students calculate out, you know, how much would it cost if you had your laundry sent out? How much would it cost if you had a personal shopper? How much would it cost if you had somebody cook all of your meals for you? Um, and just kind of go through the laundry list of things that women were expected to do. And the salary is huge. A woman would have a really, really high salary if she were paid to do all those things. So to me, what's troublesome about second wave feminism 
is women are now encouraged to go out and get jobs, which is great. But now they're doing both. Now women have two full-time jobs. And I say this as someone who was born in the late 80s. My mom went to work every day, full-time, hardcore job, and then came home and raised us. And I'm not, you know, men still weren't expected to do domestic labor. Men still were not expected to cook. Did your, did your father call it babysitting if he had to watch you and your brother? He, my dad doesn't listen to this. I'm not trying to be mean to my dad, but he just didn't. And it wasn't him. It's just men really weren't expected to do that. We would go to my grandma's house. My grandma would watch us. And my dad, he attended everything we did and he was very kind and loving and sweet and attentive to us. But like my mom packed our lunches. My mom made all of our meals. My mom did all of our laundry. I mean, and she was doing that on top of a full-time job. And so to me, that's what second wave feminism is so damaging to that generation that grew up seeing all that and saying, oh gosh, I've got to do both now. Mm-hmm. You know? Super mom. Super mom. And it's, I mean, how impossible is that? And then that's when, you know, the advent of like Kraft macaroni and cheese. I mean, my God, I'm surprised I didn't turn into Kraft macaroni and cheese. I love that stuff. But mm-hmm. you get these really simple things that come out of like, we've just got to feed these kids because I've got to go to work. And I think it's kind of damaging to families. And I don't think that women should have to stay home and do all that labor. I think that a more egalitarian system should develop and is in the process of developing. But second wave feminism kind of instills this idea that women now have to do both things and they're not compensated for one. Well, and what's interesting is there was a real breaking apart in popular culture of this, right? So you've got somebody like Mary Tyler Moore, the Mary Tyler Moore show. Fantastic show. You should go watch it. Um, I've not the seen funeral, Tyler Moore. The funeral show. episode for Chuckles the Clown is one of the greatest things ever produced for television. I have uh, but here, Mary Tyler Moore is a woman who is not bounded by marriage or children. She has her career. Now, she dates men, um, but... She is not, she is living kind of the second wave feminist dream. And she's that's facing the some of the challenges. Dream. Is that the dream though? Is to abandon family? For many, is right. That- I think for some second wave feminist, it is because she is constructing her own identity independent of those old ways of looking at women. But then you have other things that are popular at the same time, like Little House on the Prairie, where you, it's a very conventional depiction of a mother. Um, so it's a culture war. Well, I think, yeah, I think it's a culture war. And it's interesting. You said 1980, you think, is when kind of second wave feminism finally ends. I would pin it to the 77 National Women's Conference in Houston. Okay. Uh, because there's so much fracturing that goes on at that conference, even though it seems to be a great moment of unity, many women there are organizing around much smaller subsets of the broader feminist movement. So uh, you have all these famous people who are there, but you have kind of women um, of Puerto Rican descent who gather together. You have women um, who are Native American gathering together. You have women who are uh, who would identify themselves as Black or African American getting together. You have women identifying themselves as rural women. You have women identifying themselves as older women. And even though they're all in the conference at the same time, they start talking past each other. And Maxine Waters, there's this really great thing that happens with her um, where she tries to explain the, the role of midwives in the black community to white women who want to take pregnancy and childbirth out of the hospitals and put it back in the home. And Maxine Waters is coming from the opposite perspective. And she said, I want all black women in California to actually be able to go to hospitals and have their babies in a sanitary environment because even though midwifery has been a part of our culture, there are inherent problems in it. And we haven't had access to this advanced medical care. So the two groups are just talking completely by each other. 
you know, you really do see that split by that point. And there isn't a, that's the biggest problem for me with feminist movements, the second wave. And even now the third is like, what is the platform? What is the unifying cause? What is everybody going to rally around? And you, there's no, it's hard to come to an agreement in first wave feminism. I think that there was the agreement with the movement that they want the vote. But then it quickly kind of dissolves after that when there's just fractures and then there's fractures again in the second wave. I said 1980 because of the election of Reagan. I mean, you have 57% of women vote for Ronald Reagan in 1980. And to me, that really signals this moment where it's like, okay, second wave feminism is dead. Like we are moving into this new era. And I think it's because most of the people who participated in second wave feminism, most of the women they had settled into that suburban life that they had so, you know, so much rejected. And so they were kind of going for conservative economic policies, et cetera, right? You had a, an overwhelming, people overwhelmingly voted for Reagan in 1980, right? Mm-hmm. So to me, that kind of marks that moment. But I think it's important that you said 77 too, because it's like, that is probably, you're right. After you said it, it's like, that's the moment where it splits up really bad. But to me, it's just like solidified 1980 when Reagan comes into power. It's like, ah, we're done with this now. Well, I think it's – here's the thing is I think that um, the defeat of ERA in 78 and 79 takes a lot of the wind out of the movement. And I think this kind of – rupture in the 77 conference means people are not unified to fight back as states start to revoke their ratifications. So in 73, Nebraska revokes its ratification. In 74, Tennessee does so. In Idaho, Idaho does in 77. Kentucky does in 78. And South Dakota does in 79. I think if there had maybe been a little bit more unification coming out of that 77 conference, they might've been able to get their act together and, and see this as the imminent threat to the movement. Um, But it gets back to what we were talking about earlier is like, how many things can you pay attention to at once? How many things? And I can understand if you are, um, if you're a woman with children and you do not have the luxury of being able to work because you cannot afford childcare, so you have to stay home and take care of your children, a lot of the things that are being talked about at this conference in 77 seem very irrelevant to your life. Yeah, that the movement's not serving you at all. Right. It's like, I'm glad you're advocating universities spend more money on women's history and things like that in universities. That does nothing for me. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the whole problem, though, is that it's very difficult to have a movement that does serve everybody and serve everybody's interests, right? I mean, that's, that's the issue we have today. Well, it's big, big tent groups. It is the inherent problem with them is that they kind of just have to be focused on a single issue. I mean, this is the point of several books that historians have written over the years about why suffrage is ultimately able to be passed is you have people who kind of put aside other issues and focus on this one thing. But once it's done, then they kind of break apart um, and focus on all these other kind of smaller issues. And th- and to say smaller, I don't mean irrelevant or lesser import- of, of lesser importance. But with less but support. It's, it's a smaller number of people who are concerned with those issues. Well, a um, smaller number of people who will um, fight for them too, right? That they'll get involved in a movement or something. I mean, that's one of the big questions is like, what motivates people to join a social movement? And if there isn't an umbrella cause, I mean, I criticized the women's March in 2017 because I was like, why are you doing that? Like to me, there was no platform for it. And it seemed destined to fail. It's like, all you want to do is wear pink hats and go to the white house. I was offended by it. Frankly, I thought this is, this is weak. Mm-hmm. You have no platform. You have no organization. You're not asking for something specific. And sure enough, very quickly after everybody showed up in Washington with their pink hats and took pictures for social media and, you know, showed how woke they were, it completely disseminated. 
And that was so disappointing because it was a moment where you could have really been fighting for people. You could have been fighting for um, so many different causes to unify underneath. And the only thing that they seemed to want to do was go on a trip to Washington, D.C. And I mean, I know this is controversial. I'm a woman and I, I really do want to see, you know, third wave feminism, you know, have an umbrella movement or cause, but it's kind of another one of those situations where I'm just like, what's the platform? What are we getting behind? What's the policy implication? What policy are you fighting for? If you don't have an answer to any of those questions, your movement's dead in the water. So we've got a few minutes here. So we have third wave feminism and possibly fourth wave feminism. Um, and each of these kind of the, the, the time span gets less and less. Uh, third wave feminism, the argument is it starts in the late 80s, is really dominant in the 90s and wanes in the early 2000s. Uh, fourth wave feminism kind of emerges alongside social media. In fact, some of the advocates for fourth wave feminism argue that technology is the thing that defines fourth wave feminism. Um, and intersectionality is explicitly a part of how people involved in fourth wave feminism see feminism. Um, and what's interesting, I think historians like us look at third and fourth wave feminism and we wonder, are they really two separate movements or are they really kind of doing very similar things? When do you think third wave feminism becomes a thing? Uh, third wave feminism. I, I'll say for me, it's hard to mark because it's so recent that it's hard to say when a movement starts or ends. And I think Thelma and Louise Really? I think the movie Thelma and Louise is a product of third wave feminism. And that's mid 91. Um, Maybe there's just like a 10 year lull ish, about a little over a decade lull. Yeah. Second and third. Um, I mean, that's the thing is I think I can point to things that definitely seem to be part of this third wave feminism, but I can't point to kind of, well, here's the moment it happens. Um, but I mean, third wave feminism is kind of about self-empowerment. What and is women. about inclusivity and equality for everybody? It's right. not just about sex anymore. It's, it is about, it's about, I think it's more like a human rights sort of camp. Maybe, but I think, I think that's how some people in fourth wave feminism would define fourth wave. So that's interesting. It's, You're saying maybe they're not different then. I, I don't know. Like, um, fourth wave feminism, I think, so breaks some long held ideas about feminism. So, one of the things fourth wave feminism argues is that equal work for equal pay and equal opportunities have to be extended to women, but also to men. Um, that everybody does. So, I think fourth wave is more in line with what you and I assume third wave is about third wave occupies kind of this nebulous space. Um, as, a, as an historian, I think we're too close to both of these movements to make any kind of clear judgment about, well, what is it and what is it not doing? Yeah. But, but I, but I think this intersectionality, I think is at the, the center of fourth wave feminism. Um, and that you cannot, you cannot separate a person's ethnicity, their race, um, their socioeconomic status, education level, their education level, the sex they're assigned at, the sex they're assigned at birth. Yeah, well, it's a global issue. It's a global phenomenon too. It's not just United States focused, which is interesting. Um, well, um, the Me Too movement. Yeah. I, to me, it's the Me Too movement, I don't know if that's fourth wave feminist. So for me, the Me Too movement was kind of like second wave feminists talk about their experiences. Oh. You know what I'm saying? Like there were a lot of people who came out of the woodwork that were like, this happened to me in 1974. This happened to me. You know, it's like women were finally in a space comfortable enough to like speak 
their truth or like what happened with them. And then that allowed for other women from other generations to say, Hey, me too. But I think the me too movement was like deeply rooted in like second wave feminism stuff. And I see it as really highly correlated with Gloria Steinem's time as an undercover and playboy, which we talked about earlier. So what about Gamergate? What was that? Gamergate. Oh, that was a whole, yeah, that was a whole thing. I mean, what I'll say though is, you know, I'll get back to that in a second, but you know, we talked about first wave feminism because there was so much hindsight to it, that it was a period of like over a hundred years is what you were arguing. Maybe there is no third and fourth waves. Maybe it, maybe in a, maybe in a hundred years when they look back at it, it'll just be one movement. Right. And you can say, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's hard to say that there's a specific start and end to a movement um, until you're far away from it. And I think with first wave, you can say it starts here and ends here. But with here, with second and third and fourth, we're kind of still in the midst of it. So Gamergate was like. So that's Anita Sarkeesian. Don't want girls playing games or something, right? Well, she does this thing of tropes versus women in video games. And, and she argues a couple of things. First, she argues the depiction of women in video games is pretty awful. And then she argues the reason it's awful is because this is, this is men producing it. Women are not involved in the industry in any meaningful level. Um, and there's this violent, and I say violent because she receives death threats. There's this violent backlash um, that becomes called as, uh, it becomes known as Gamergate. Um, and basically if you are, um, a woman that's engaging in video game production or development or anything like that, you are targeted oftentimes by these Gamergate individuals. And I think, I think what's interesting is that if, if you take the definition that technology sits at the center of fourth wave feminism, then sure. Gamergate certainly seems to be a concern for fourth wave feminism, but I think it's interesting what you bring up with the times up in me too movement is that it's actually not the same age as women who are concerned with Gamergate or I don't know if you remember Emma Watson's he for she. Yeah. Yeah. That's a or the free, the, or the free the nipple movement. Right. That's more of a global thing, but yeah. But I mean, the free the nipple movement sounds a lot like something the red stockings would have done. Yeah. Some, it comes out of the second wave. Yeah. Most certainly. And it sounds very free lovish, right? The 1960s kind of an era, but yeah. Gamergate and the technology stuff is really interesting because as we move to live in a more virtual space, the fact that we've created a virtual space that it's, it's fake, it's artificial. We've created the internet and it too is sexist, you know, because it's a product of our society and a reflection of our society. I think that that's what, if they're, we're going to call it like a fourth wave, that's what they're all trying to point out. It's like, look, even the technology is sexist. And there's been studies about the way that men interact with female AIs and how just like degrading they are to Siri who gives them wrong directions or something along those lines. And they'll like yell mm-hmm. at Siri. And it's just like, we've managed to replicate our really sexist, racist, et cetera, society. And we've just made it virtual now. And I think that that's what fourth wave feminism is concerned with in a global context, because the internet is not just confined to this one geographic location. Gamergate's interesting though. And the I mean, Gamergate's interesting, and I think another thing of, of if there is really this fourth wave, and I'm not saying there is, I'm not saying there isn't, and I and I think they've got interesting evidence. People argue it is a different movement because a lot of it is is centered around calling people, it's centered on calling people out. So one of the things that happens is this female graduate student at the University of Miami reports a prominent professor, a tenured professor for sexual harassment, he ends up having to leave. He re- he has to resign. And both of us are in academia. Does sexism exist in academia today? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Hashtag uh, sexism, racism, classism, homophobia. It's all, it all ex- well in the academy. It all exists. I mean, people outside the academy like to think that it's all super liberal people constantly. Um, there are some real creeps in academia. Sometimes the most liberal people or people who are so outwardly outspoken about being so, you know, I used the term earlier, but so woke are the ones who are the most biggest tool bags to deal with. 
just absolutely disgusting interactions that I've had with some of these people who think that they're such, you know, um, revolutionary liberal people. I've obviously I'm having, like, I'm going through something right now, but like, there's just a lot of people who you deal with in this space who outwardly, like on the outside, they try to project this image of being, I'm so inclusive. I'm so liberal, blah, blah, blah. And then they'll just have really gross interactions with you one-on-one. And it's really troubling. And that's what the Me Too movement brings out for sure. And I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe it is a fourth wave. I don't know. Like, I I mean, I haven't, I admit I've been dismissive of there being a fourth wave because I'm like, well, so the fourth wave only lasts for five or six years. And then we have a fifth wave and that lasts for like two years. And then eventually, are we going to have a different wave every month? Like, yeah, that's why I think it's a problem to like label them when we're still in the midst of it, right? It's it's a problem I think to label a moment until we can really look back and reflect on it. Well, I think that was an interesting journey through second wave feminism. Yeah. Um hopefully it it sparks some curiosity in people to to go out and investigate it a little more. Um, if you've not read Gloria Steinem's fantastic investigative piece um, about the Playboy Bunny Club, the Playboy Club, you need to. It is a magnificent piece of journalism. Um, and I would encourage to- you too to look into some modern threads of the way that women are treated online. I mean, I browse through the Reddit threads all the time of like the incels, men going their own way, all this kind of stuff, and just you would be shocked, maybe not. I'm shocked daily by just how much sexism there is still out there and, and just how outright it is um, and that we still really have a long way to go. Uh, but yeah, read also read The Feminine Mystique. See if you, if you d- dislike it as much as Jeff. But read The Second Sex as well. That's a good one, yeah. Preferably in the original French. I'm joking. That's pretentious. You don't need to read it in the original French. I knew I was going to pronounce her name wrong, and I knew you were going to correct me. But I'm, I'm, I, I'm not a French. So. I didn't overtly correct you. I subversively corrected you in a very man in a very man speaky way. You mansplained it to me. Um, yes, I did. All right. Well, I uh, point out really quickly, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do that. Um, go onto YouTube, like subscribe, go on to Spotify, wherever you are, leave us a comment, help boost our listeners and help boost, um, our reach to whoever wants to listen. And if you want to, please suggest it to a friend, um, or family member. And we hope that you enjoyed our episode today. All right. Well, until next time, I'm Jeff and I'm Hillary. Have a good one. Thank mm-hmm. you.